Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to part one of our special two-part series of the Work Shouldn't Suck Live Morningish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Oscar Abello and Vanessa Roanhorse. And let's just jump right into the action. Oscar and Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good morning. So when we first started this show, we were really talking about sort of work and leadership among the pandemic. The pandemic continues to drag on, and now we have the additional burden of caring and sort of speaking out about how Black Lives Matter, police brutality, and it feels like people are really, really feeling all of this pressure. So with all of that being said, how are you doing, both of you? I'm okay. I'm okay this morning. It's like, uh, depends, right? Like, how do you wake up? That waking up side of the bed thing really matters. So like today's a good day. It's Friday. It's beautiful. Some good stuff happened this week. Some sad stuff happened this week with work and family. And I don't know, I guess it's just overall exhaustion, just general Mm -hmm. tiredness, trying to like do all of that, but also just really happy to kind of have this opportunity to just be in this like group of four to get to catch up with Oscar who has been killing it with articles lately and then get to see your face Lauren and just kind of have a different way of waking up which I'm grateful for or else I would just be still in my room mm-hmm. at the computer <laughs> and and get dressed. Mm-hmm. like yeah. back in the day when we used to do that yeah and Oscar how are you doing I am also excited to be with you all this morning and talking with Vanessa. I'm also, I guess, focused in terms of what I have to do today, just because generally speaking, journalists are always on deadlines. And so today I have to be writing about the first worker-owned holding cooperative that recently made its first acquisition as a holding cooperative. Mm -hmm. And it's based in Baltimore. And it started out with a bunch of formerly incarcerated workers who created a staffing company. And there's a whole story. You can read it on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. But I'm really fortunate or privileged in some sense that those are the kinds of stories I generally write about. So in this time, I don't have to shift my focus. It just becomes even more urgent. Mm-hmm. And the context becomes even more powerful and these folks with these ideas are pushing forward even now everything that's happening yeah so during this time i'm just i feel like keep saying this time we all kind of know what that means we didn't share your bios with the audience because i think it's important for you to talk about the work you're doing right now whether that work if that work has shifted i know vanessa you and i stay in touch a little bit more closely but i know the work that you've been doing with Rome horse consulting has shifted in a, a number of different ways. So do you want to share a little bit about your bio, your background, and, and sort of the, the types of work that y'all typically do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, a Vanessa Roanhorse. I'm Dana from the nation, the Navajo Nation. Grew up there. Live here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So we have a small Indigenous women-led consulting company, and we've been really trying to push at the boundaries around creating products, programs, supports to help move and curate meaningful relevant resources to communities of color. So we have a pretty strong focus in Indian country. And that work for us has been a variety of things from policy to working with folks to kind of systems map where they fit in the problem that they're looking to solve to working with the state of New Mexico to really ensure that we get our census count for urban natives. Oscar and I have actually had a 
number of conversations around co-op capital, which is a character-based lending initiative for underbanked entrepreneurs, particularly mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. So we do a lot of interesting things, but because we work at such a hyper-localized way and still kind of can pull up to that sort of 30,000 foot systems view, when COVID happened, just naturally, because the team is native, all of us are Navajo, we knew immediately that it was going to get bad. We saw it with the Hansa virus when that came in and happened. We lived it, right? Like we live on, I grew up on the reservation. I know what that's like. So our team completely, almost like 50% of our time went com- full volunteer, mm-hmm. essentially trying to map what was happening. A lot of it was like, who's on the ground working? What grassroots organizations are moving forward? How have they shifted their original work to now just be COVID relief, which was making sure there was PPE, people had food, they were delivering water, medicine, diapers, tampons. People were actually out there paving the damn roads themselves so that we could make sure supplies were going through. And so that was our charge was we immediately went in And then the last part was trying to make sure we could connect it to people with money who had money to give. So that's really a huge lift that we've been taking on since COVID started, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for me, I'm the senior economics correspondent at Next City, which is a nonprofit publication founded in 2003. And the Cliff Note version is in 2000, back in 2003, the narrative about cities was still very much this is there's so much crime and drugs and all the problems were because of cities smog and all those older narratives about cities generally and our founders said we wanted to create a publication that would look at cities as the places where solutions would come from and we would go out and find folks in cities living in cities who were trying to solve problems over time as the narrative shifted around cities to become now cities are the cool place to be now we sort of shifted our focus or narrowed our focus even more on those neighborhoods, those parts of cities that, again, are still seen as the places where there's crime, there's drugs, all the problems in society, violence. We look at those neighborhoods and we say, what are they doing about economic development? What are they doing about housing? What are they doing about education? And what models are they using? What allies are they bringing to the table? And what work are they getting done? So those are the typical kinds of stories that we'll cover in any given sphere. And as the economics correspondent, I'm usually writing about access to capital or access to jobs and different business models or programs or policies that are affecting the economies of those neighborhoods. Who's driving the access to capital, access to jobs, and how is it happening? And for me, the systems pieces come into it in terms of there's no... I have to write a story. Like someone has to have an idea. (laughs) Or maybe it's usually a group of people. They have an idea and they have to bring other people to that idea and build something. And the more that happens, the more I get to write. And so I've written 400 stories since 2015 about that. And I just have to say, like, if anyone doesn't follow Oscar on Twitter, they need to because there's literally... (laughs) history threads that Oscar will put down where he'll be like, here's what we think the problem is. Now I'm going to take you on a journey in 140 characters and we're going to go through in like the Twitter thread. I have learned more Mm -hmm. in those Twitter threads on the history of certain things than I have 
probably if I tried to read the whole, like any kind of book. So I just, yeah, I have to say Oscar. Yeah. I'm checking with Oscar every day and Michael Harriet. Like yeah. those are no, my, no. I do too. No, yeah. I'm like, okay, what's happening. What do I need to be focused on or whatnot? But yeah, Oscar yeah. is one of those threads I go to. Yeah. Oscar, your Twitter right handle is Oscar thinks, right? Yes. Yeah. Oscar thinks. I really appreciate hearing that because as a journalist, we're supposed to think of ourselves as serving the public in some way. And not enough of us think enough about what does that mean? Who is the public and what service are we providing? And yeah, I think about Vanessa. I think about Lauren. I think about Jessica Norwood or mm-hmm. or Camille Kerr or a lot of the folks that I ended up writing about. Next City ends up being sort of a trade publication in the sense that the people it writes about tend to also be part of its audience. And so because we're trying to either transfer knowledge from one place to another or at least transfer some kind of inspiration. Like I know that the fact that Vanessa is doing is kicking ass in Albuquerque and, and, and Navajo Nation and, and other tribal nations. I know that that brings a lot of inspiration to others in different situations, but facing a lot of the same systemic barriers because let's face it if you don't look a certain way if you're not a certain gender in this country we're all fighting that same mm-hmm. that supremacy and we have different contexts and different experiences of what it means and that's why i end up having the opportunity to write all these stories yeah is because everyone's got their own way of responding and trying to tackle the beast that's in front of them yeah well, yeah, so, when you said 400 pieces, Oscar, Lauren and I are just trying to write one. <laughs> it's like four yeah, weeks I, on. I fail, like, I fail every day at writing the one thing I'm supposed to write. Like, that's one of my few guarantees in life. We even teamed yeah. up to make it easier, and it's like yep, twice as slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think most of us woke up this morning to alerts on our phones saying that the unemployment rate had dropped to 13%. Is that what? Have you seen that yet? Yeah. So I have so many thoughts around data and our unemployment numbers in the United States, but would love to hear your two particular reflections on perhaps who is now employed again (laughs) and how in the middle of a pandemic and massive, massive street protests of unemployed people who are being brutalized by the police every day. How is it possible that we get an alert like that on our phones? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i just i love that that's like gotcha <laughs> it's not a good God. i'm just what is like how did this happen it doesn't make any sense to me oh it makes perfect sense yeah it, it does it makes perfect sense <laughs> the federal reserve balance sheet went from less than two trillion to almost eight trillion in about a month mm-hmm. so that's six trillion dollars literally out of nowhere that went somewhere. Mm-hmm. Where does it go? Well, you can take three guesses and I'll give you one, one guess. Where does it go? Yeah. It goes to the places, the, to the default. What is the default? We know what the default is. And those are the companies that are suddenly able to start employing folks again. And we know who they employ. We know what it was like the last time, 10 years ago. We know what it was like the recession be- 10 years before that. We know what it was like the financial crisis 10 years before that. We know what it was like in the oil crisis the 10 years before that. 
we can go all the way back 400 years and find mm-hmm. know what the pattern is mm-hmm. who, who gets the benefit first mm-hmm. and when i hear when i think about an employment number like that oh it went down i'm like well shit like someone had to get yeah exactly. to go somewhere. like that six trillion dollars out of nowhere that had to go somewhere and i'm not surprised that that's where it's going mm-hmm. be anything to add Nope. <laughs> just, yeah. just that, like, I mean, just how much that bit of information is so not reflective of what we're seeing and so not like what's happening. It's just, it's all made up at some yeah. point. You just kind of laugh and just kind of say, this is not for me. Like, this is not useful for me. This is not about me. I don't know. There's just a certain amount of like mystical wizardry. It's just sometimes listening to Oscar and trying to just not get angry. Right. Like I don't need more blood pressure issues. (laughs) I don't need like more, but it's just like these hits keep coming. And it's about, for me at least trying to survive information, trying to survive information and, and pick what I can do within my hands around this stuff. And when I think about unemployment, I think about what we're seeing for our community members. It's bigger than just a job at this point. Like we're just sitting here trying to figure out how do we make sure we get some money to pretend to try to put together water infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is $6 trillion itself right there just to do water infrastructure. So I just got to keep remembering eye on the prize. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it took me a long time to understand what my grandmother used to say, which was don't be somebody who's always working, but not employed. And we look around neighborhoods in Baltimore where there were people working hard and who were never actually employed. And I just keep thinking about the number of people that I know who haven't had a job in 15 years, like have not had a stable full-time job since I've known them. And it's just, Whenever I see those unemployment numbers, I think about just who is not being counted and who's just whose voices and whose numbers just aren't even there anymore because they've been trying to get a job for so long. They no longer count as being unemployed, which is just this wild thing yeah. that our government does. Yeah. Yeah. The talking about water infrastructure makes me realize that a lot of the folks on either coast probably aren't aware of the unique situation. I shouldn't say it's not. It is a situation that is shared by communities all over the U.S. You've got Flint, which is not far from a huge source of fresh water, <laughs> which is just mind-boggling. But And then Newark, which is also close to a fair amount of water. But a lot of folks don't know about the Navajo Nation's water infrastructure issues. Can you talk about that a, a bit? Um, yeah, definitely I can share. I'm not an expert, but I can be an expert because I grew up with water issues. So... Navajo Nation is, in terms of size, is about the same, close to the same square footage as the state of West Virginia. It's a sovereign nation, which means it has a relationship with the federal government, which is nation to nation. The states on which it sits on, which is the state of New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah, actually don't have any rights to tell that nation how and what to do. Through treaties, we have been, we are to be supported and cared for as needed as other folks in the country should have access to certain things. But if you can imagine when COVID-19 hit, one of the statistics that people really freaked out about was for this that size, for close to 150,000 Navajo folks living on the nation, there was 13 hospitals in total. 
And most of those hospitals were small hospitals. Most of them were clinics. And there was just no way they could actually serve. We also have a police department that has to serve the state of West Virginia. And I, it's less than 100 people, I believe. Mm-hmm. And those are just like some of the human infrastructure pieces that we don't have. I mean, but when you get down to it, a lot of our community members have been hauling water have been reliant on uh, wells and have to go and get their water to shower, to bathe, to clean, to wash their hands. And so when COVID-19 hit, we saw such a quick acceleration of cases, really because people have to go somewhere common to get water. And you have to use that water. That water is so freaking precious. To have to wash your hands 500 times a day doesn't make any sense. Additionally, on top of that, we're a multi-generational living community, which means you're living with your great-grandmother, your grandmother, your mother, your aunt, your niece, your daughter, your granddaughters. And so we were seeing this like challenge of how do we still support this multi-generational living How are we going to help our community members who are the most rural be able to deal with trying to stay and use like the stay at home orders and be able to wash your hands and all of those things when the other part that we were finding is because we also lack internet infrastructure, people aren't able to get up-to-date information. So no, there was a period in which there was a lot of people in the Navajo Nation had no idea there was a pandemic going on. Yeah, And so between, God... Healthcare infrastructure, public health infrastructure, water infrastructure, internet infrastructure, road infrastructure. The thing that sucks is we have been living like this since we signed our treaties in over 200 years ago. We have been demanding water for probably since the time we started having to live on the reservation. And as everyone is just like, wow, that's so terrible. Why don't those folks wash their hands? Oh my God, how is that possible? I'm sorry, America, but y'all need to wake up. We have developing world conditions in our backyards and we've always had them. And we need to stop denying and assuming that we are the most wealthy, the most cared for country because we're not. And so that's been the big struggle for me is having to keep having that conversation with people who are trying to blame us for the pandemic or who are trying to say, well, you guys should know better. You just need to do this, this and that. And it's just like, well, yeah, you hot water. Yeah, it's it's wild to me that when I talk to people who've never really given much thought to what it's like to be disenfranchised, it's like they feel like the water pipes haven't gotten there yet, instead of realizing that they're not there on purpose. Like there was a system that made that the last place to get water infrastructure, or internet infrastructure, like, no, this is all happening on purpose. Yeah. Um, So I think that's like flipping that paradigm is going to be really, it's so important. It is. And the last thing for me that I'm struggling with is like, so we have COVID-19. I think we as Indigenous people are trying to make sure we figure out how to show up for our Black relatives, also our Black Indigenous relatives, and working or doing the internal work with us and our own people. And then this morning I wake up and Trump is moving forward to continue doing the, the fracking around Chaco, which is one of our sacred sites. Awesome. So that's continuing. And it's just like, God damn. Yeah. You can't hold it all up all the time. Yeah. I did not see that. Yeah. Yeah. They're open to like a public period right now, but they're moving. So 91% of the San Juan Basin has already 
have uh, gas and oil leases. There's 9% left. And it's like this 9% is what people are trying to save and protect right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sucks. <laughs> Well, Oscar in the green room, to Lauren's point that this happened, this is on purpose. We were talking about uh, the book, The Power Broker, New York City, LaGuardia, and how cities, New York City, where we both live, there are certain things that happened on purpose. And now even that is is changing a bit. Can you talk a bit for the audience, what's the recommendation that for those who haven't read Power Broker, that maybe chapter 18 is just the one chapter to read? Since the book's more than a thousand pages long, just pro tip from Oscar. <laughs> Let me make sure I give credit to Tia Weaver the head of what, what, what some remember as the Upstate Downstate Housing Coalition, now it's Housing Justice for All. See, we was the head organizer that basically took back rent regulation from the real estate industry last year. This tenant coalition, the statewide tenant coalition, eliminated some loopholes in New York State's rent regulation laws that were allowing, that allowed 200,000 or more rent-regulated units to be regulated out of rent regulation, so they became market rates. That's like a third of what... We had like 2 million rent-regulated units, I think, in the city, and a third of them were lost since the mid-90s when those loopholes were put in place. So CEO Weaver recommends, I think it's Chapter 18, she recommends reading The Power Broker. And the reason is she recommends it is... I'm not actually sure what is in the chapter, but the whole book, Power Broker, which has been flying around circles in urban policy for years and for some reason i guess everyone has their book like i have my bookcase behind me over here everyone else seems to have a copy of the power broker on their bookcase in my world of urban policy yes you want to it's about robert moses right and who is robert moses robert moses let's say he let me summarize it up this way robert moses in the 50s had many titles in new york city one of which was the chairperson of the Title I Slum Clearance Committee. And this committee summarily- Hell of a name for a committee. Hell of a name for a committee. And they summarily picked areas of the city and just said, these are the areas we consider slums and we're going to provide federally subsidized capital to developers to bulldoze these neighborhoods (laughs) and build all kinds of things. A lot of it was public housing, but some of it was Lincoln Center. Some of it were highways. The bulldoze was the Savoy Ballroom where Harlem's black community invented the Lindy Hop. They bulldozed that neighborhood and put in a massive housing complex that today is privately owned and recently was rebranded as Savoy Towers by some sort of sick joke on Harlem. That's who Robert Moses was. And if you want to know, like, if you want to read a story that lifts up Robert Moses as like a hero of, of urban policy, you can read The Power Broker. If you want to read a story of Robert Moses decimating communities of color and low-income communities in New York, you can walk down the street in Harlem and ask people about Robert Moses. Or you can read Death and Life of Great American Cities. Jane Jacobs talks about it too. Why is that perspective in Jane Jacobs' book? People don't re- realize, I mean, Jane Jacobs being a white woman wrote this book about this white man. Or about white men, architects, and urban planners. Right? Here's one takeaway I take from Jane Jacobs' book. She walked around Harlem and she talked to people about what it was like. The book is basically a reflection of, yeah, you know what? All these other people have the same thoughts I did. This Robert Moses is a piece of shit that needs to be. <laughs> and, 
the first couple chapters of, of Death and Life of Great American Cities is, yeah, you know, I walked around uptown. I walked around in these black neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. And yeah, everyone was saying the same thing I was thinking. How about that? <laughs> you know, what's so funny about that book for me is when I was living in Chicago, I had a colleague, I worked at a sustainability company with a bunch of planners. They kind of approached sustainability through very much from an urban planner lens. And it was a very white organization. And I remember a colleague decided to have like a lunch and learn. And he did a lunch and learn presentation on that book. And actually the book I have is from him because he's like, you have to read this. This is, it was like his, he gave it to me because he said he was so inspired by this guy. And he was like, there's so many good tenants on how we should all think about power and leadership. And I've never read it. It's just been sitting there because it was a gift from him. And I will never read it now. And I'm so glad because his version of this is everything that book was trying to do. And I'm going to have to send this, this clip of this podcast to him, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little, little moments of resistance. I love it. Oh, yeah. 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 So Oscar, you recently did a thread that educated me, of course, around the economic justice struggle in Black communities and sort of how Black communities have been innovating around capital for a really long time. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I love, I just love how you put together. And again, like, how do we begin to shift the narrative around how Black and Brown people survive economically in the United States? Because there's this idea that we aren't innovating, that we're not struggling that we are lazy and that people like me who are able to be successful here are sort of a one-off as opposed to the fact that I'm able to swim upstream in white water. <laughs> just with the sheer effort it takes. But I just, I really appreciated that thread and shared it pretty widely. So can you talk a bit about it? Yeah, it was, it was Saturday and <laughs> I woke up thinking about the, the scale at which the uprisings had reached nationally and i was seeing on twitter on with mostly on twitter i'm a journalist we spend all day on twitter mm-hmm. and the headlines about the destruction going on and some of the shade thrown at people you know there was some people were saying oh why don't they just protest peacefully i'm like well first of all they have been protesting peacefully some folks were saying well if there's problems in the community why don't they do something about it i'm like they have they have been protesting peacefully and they're doing so much more. And how do I know that? Because I, mean, I keep the receipts and <laughs> I, have, I have stories. And I get like, I track the demographics of every source I quote in my stories. I started doing that in 2015. And so I can tell you that I've written, as of the end of 2019, I haven't redone the totals yet, but at the end of 2019, I had written 392 stories for Next City, and 180 of those stories quoted at least one Black person. I had interviewed 897 people by the end of 2019, or quoted 897 people, and 279 of those people were Black. I have it also breaking down by gender, so if you want to know, 897 people total, 144 Black women, 133 Black men, two Black gender nonconforming individuals. I started keeping those demographics 
because I just wanted to know as a journalist, was I contributing to the continued stereotype of white saviors or would I be able to look back and say, no, I'm, I'm lifting up stories and sources and leaders and communities that look like the cities that I was writing about. And over time, I mean, it, it's, I had read a little bit about redlining in college, mm-hmm. but when you talk to 279 black people about economic development in their cities, you learn a lot about yeah. that. And you learn a lot about how they view themselves in their communities as carrying on the tradition, sometimes spiritually, the tradition of resistance and rebuilding and regeneration. Sometimes it's literally the family tradition. Mm-hmm. Like there are black CDFI leaders, black leaders of community development and financial institutions. Their parents worked for HUD in the early days. Mm-hmm. They might not have been so proud of the work they'd done for HUD, but they were working in community development in the 60s. And they had kids and now their kids are working in community development and trying to fix a lot of the problems left over from before. Then there's generations, examples of um, black community or black urban real estate developers whose parents were in real estate or maybe they were a banker or something. It goes back, I mean, for me, it, I'm drawn to stories about access to capital and managing capital, capital flows and how historically marginalized communities retaking power over capital. And so it was very, it was very powerful for me to come across Collective Courage, the book by Jessica Gordon-Emhart a few years ago. You know, this is the book, The History of Black Cooperatives, written by a black woman who herself was like, I didn't even know until someone flagged it for me when I was writing, when I was doing some research and then I started reading about all these stories in the crisis mm-hmm. edited by, by W.B. Du Bois about black cooperatives. And she started doing the research and she wrote a book about it. And one of the things that resonated for me was what was one of the first earliest examples of a cooperatively owned black institution? Mm-hmm. It was an insurance company. It was a cooperatively owned insurance company in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. So to me, the tradition of black communities trying to regain power over capital not to replace what has been stolen, but just to survive. Right. That's always the, the temptation to think about if you're a historically marginalized community and you're retaking power over capital in some way, is that all you need? No, it's not. Mm-hmm. You have had capital stolen, extracted. You've had oil as well. Mm-hmm. You've had that extracted from, you've had land taken away from you. I mean, yeah, I think about, about yeah. Shirley Sherrod and yeah. sort of black farming co-ops and like yeah. literally having white people using capital systems to take land from black farmers. Yeah. And what it amounts to is like, sometimes the response of policymakers or the ivory tower researchers is like, well, you know, we got to teach black people. We got to teach native communities how to manage land and money. No, 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 you don't. Or it's like, let's do another research. Do we have enough data? Oh yeah. No, this is what they need. Hmm. Yeah. Let's ask that question yeah. again. And, uh, that's between like that and them moving capital to do more research Yeah, to make sure our numbers are right. Yeah. I um, feel like any funder who is who's funding research right now for anthropological or societal studies of where they could direct their money should get pilloried in, the, in their community. They should be. I'm a hundred percent with that. Go there, like when the world opens up, let's take tomatoes to their office and throw them. 
I want to give him paper cuts and squeeze tomatoes <laughs> on top of it. Paper cuts and lemons for you. <laughs> paper cuts and lemons for you. That's where we're going with this. Absolutely. I mean, I recently had someone say, can you put an assessment together for me on what we think the COVID-19 impact has been for Native Americans? Oh. And I just sent them the death toll and percentage per capita. And I was like, there's your report. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> what else do you need? Um, did you build for that? Please tell me you build for that. I did not. It was just yeah. a simple, quick email. I cut and pasted it and I just responded and said, there you go. <laughs> and they've not returned my email. Well, good. <laughs> good. You didn't need them anyway. That's the beautiful thing. <laughs> what yeah. would this look like, Vanessa? And I was, and they even suggested a three-phased approach. Oh, oh no! <laughs> oh God, that's embarrassing. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, another clip to send to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar, when you share your demographics about the number of non-white men that you talk to. Do you get the pipeline question? Like, where do you find all these people to talk to? <laughs> oh, my guys? Yeah. I do. I know you do. Where what do you, do you say? Them? Like, how do you, like, God, yeah, Oscar, where do you find all these great people? Well, I met both of you at one of those places. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes I'm hesitant to say specifically where, because I'm like, well, I got a group to protect. Like, but, yeah. but, but I can't. But then I also sit back in there and I think, wait a minute, even though I need to keep my own pipeline of stories going, there's always more in those spaces than I'm able to cover. There's always more happening. Like coming out of, I met Lauren and Vanessa at COCAP, mm-hmm. a convening organized by Common Future in a space in West Oakland that it recently changed its name, but I will still, it will forever in my heart be known as Impact Hubble. Yeah. They, and it was a convening held by Common Future led by a black male, Rodney Foxworth, with women of color who are majority people who work at Common Future and they convene these. It must have been the, um, the fourth or fifth time for this convening. I can't remember how many times. But people of color like to gather in spaces too. Yeah. If you want to find them and you want to listen to them, they're out there. They're going to community meetings. They're going to the city council meetings and testifying. They're having open meetings in their own neighborhood about like, Here's what's fucked up right now and what we're trying to do about it. And it is not that hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I feel like those spaces, Vanessa and I both, I think that week did the, let me go to SOCAP and be in this really white space oh yeah, and feel depleted. And then let me go back across the Bay to Oakland uh-huh. <laughs> to just have my soul replenished again. I feel like that week is always a bit of like just whiplash. Yep. Yeah, I would agree with that. It was also that last round of SOCAP, COCAP, well, SOCAP, not COCAP. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, it's a mouthful. It was also like the 40th year for the taking over of Alcatraz by the American Indian movement was that same week was it was 40 years that week when that happened. And you get to see that you're in that SOCAP weird space and you get to see Alcatraz. It's just such a surreal experience But I think a lot about like, for me, the folks who are doing the coolest and the baddest work, I mean, thank God for the internet, you can find them. They're Mm -hmm. there. I mean, that's the other part that's so frustrating is how many times people reach out to me and I'm like, am I literally the only native person you know? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the only black person people know. That's why they (laughs) call me. 
<laughs> and you're just like, come on now. Like, there's so many ways to do research. There's so many ways to find out what people are doing. And I think that's the part is, you know, it's just laziness. Yeah. Well, I also, like I, yeah. Yeah. I also feel like I can't give you permission to access my community. Like there's this, mm. I feel like inherent in that is this, and it's like, you actually have to go do that. And I can invite you into communities that I've created, but I can't give you access to all black people that I know because they might not want you or they might not want you today. And, and at a later time, you're welcome. But I do think that's such a, the pipeline question and like how I, I've also been thinking a lot about the work, both of you. And there's something different happening, by the way, right now around this uprising, because it's the first time that I've, and just what I'm seeing on Twitter is white people aren't necessarily asking us to make ourselves legible to them like ourselves, our history, our, and I felt like for, in a lot of the work in the organizations that I've been involved with, it's always us trying to figure out how do we make our, how do we have our narrative be legible to white people? How can we say what we do in a language they understand or connected to an experience they understand? And I feel like I'm now seeing white people to a certain extent start to pick up history whether it's written history or oral history, and they're starting to sort of process it and try to understand it for themselves. And then other white people are serving as translators, which is just, it's a really interesting moment for like, how is American history being rewritten in real time right now? Yeah, one of the headlines I woke up to this morning was apparently anti-racist books are selling out Mm -hmm. print runs currently. Yeah, it's (laughs) a weird time. Like the number of white people who don't know about Fred Hampton, if you don't know about the move bombing, who just don't, if you have not been paying attention, it's your own fault, yeah. but I'm kind of glad you're waking up now. Yeah. Every year it's an annual, the, the NPR station every year, it's about a month ago, right? It was the anniversary. Mm-hmm. They wrote they did the story in like 2014, I think. And they said, why don't more people in Philly know about the move bombing? And they tweeted out on the anniversary every year. And every year there's a bunch of people responding like, yeah, why didn't I know about the move bomb? Yeah. <laughs> in Philly. I didn't know until college. Mm-hmm. You know how I found out? This is another thing. <laughs> how did you, first, where'd you go to college? Oh, it's just funny. I went to a predominantly white institution mm-hmm. in, in <laughs> Philadelphia. Okay. His nickname is Vanilla Nova. Uh-huh. Okay. Vanilla University. Yep, but you did. Even, even there, you will find about eight black professors who are like, you know what? We're going to be here and educate these white folks about our history. I had five of those eight professors, by the way. Oh, good. But it was a white professor who had a class, a liberation theology class, that she taught in conjunction with prisoners at the time, life inmates at Graterford State Prison in, in, outside, further out in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so we got to go take classes with them in Graterford State Prison. Mm-hmm. One of those classmates was Michael Afterburn, mm. who, who was... Who was let out recently, but passed away or had a family. I believe he was let out and there was a loss in the family. It might have been, oh, I'm blanking out right now on the storyline. But anyway, that's how I found out about Move Bombing. Mm-hmm. I was in class. I was in a liberation theology class. One of mm-hmm. the, he was a kid at the time. One of the kids, yeah. 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 I, well, the article for this year that I read that stayed with me was someone someone posting you know, the move bombing happened when a bomb fell out of a military helicopter. And I'm like, it didn't fall out. Of a, like, how are we giving the bomb more agency than people? Like, what, like, what happened? <laughs> wow. Yeah, just, just wild. 
Oh, so much. So, so much in my head. Vanessa, are you going to say something? No. I think okay. for those white people who are unable to get print copies of the anti-racist books, Audible and eBooks, there's so many out there yeah. that uh, are available in electronic format, but buy them out because they'll get reprinted and that's a good problem to have. Yeah. This has been really, really good for my soul in a real way. And I think it's a really good starting point. It's well, actually it shouldn't be a starting point for anyone in our audience. Y'all. They should already be doing the work, but I think this is just a really important wrinkle to add to the conversations that are happening right now from both of you. So I guess we'll start to land the plane and I'll land it with the suitcase question, which is throughout your life, you've been carrying around a suitcase backpack, something like that with you with all bunch of behaviors and beliefs and thoughts and actions that you kind of did regularly. And the question is, what's one thing that's been in your backpack for a really long time that's never going back in post-pandemic, post, if there is a post-pandemic, if there is ever an end to the sort of uprising that's currently happening as well at the same time? And what's one new thing that you found that you're going to hold on to forever? I'll go first and give Vanessa time to think about it. (laughs) That's kind. That is so kind. Thanks, Oscar. I was talking about this yesterday with my sister, actually, and... It was the first time I've actually vocalized this. The thing that I'm leaving out is being a journalist, I do worry or think about, I used to worry about how many people are going to read my work. Mm -hmm. I think the impact of my work is limited if if not enough people read it, if it's not good enough, if it doesn't reach enough of an audience. I used to worry about that. But yesterday, talking with my sister, something came up that I've never vocalized before, but it didn't feel like an epiphany. I just had never said it. And the, the thing that I realized and I said on for the first time yesterday was I shouldn't worry about if my work is popular in this culture that is so toxic with racism and patriarchy and heteronormativism. I shouldn't worry about it because in some sense, what is popular is what appeals to what is the dominant culture. And... I shouldn't worry about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still want to be a better writer, and I still feel like I'm getting better every day or every week, thanks to my editors and thanks to feedback I get from lots of different folks, including Vanessa and Lauren and others. Sometimes the feedback comes through Twitter. Sometimes it comes through my DMs on Facebook or Twitter mm-hmm. or Instagram sometimes even. So I'm leaving out, I'm taking out permanently the idea that my work needs to be super popular in order to have an impact. And I guess what I'm putting what I'm putting into that back to my backpack is maybe leaning more on others to support me in material ways because as a journalist you don't get paid shit. And it's hard I was one of those folks. I'm a first born child of a a Filipino mother which means you don't ask for help. It just happens to you. So I don't know how to ask for help. And that's something that, I don't know if it's in my backpack yet, but I'm finding, trying to find a, an asking for help tool and trying to get that into into my back. Yeah. Well, I know that you weren't fishing for a compliment, but your work has been tremendously impactful on on my work. And most certainly, I felt like I have been 
I spent a lot of time learning all the history I didn't learn in Catholic schools and all the history I didn't learn in public schools and at predominantly white institutions. And your work has greatly accelerated my process of unlearning a number of the things that, I, that I've learned. So thank you for that. You're very kind. Thank you for that. Vanessa, how about you? You've had plenty um, of time to think. So yeah. better, this better be dazzling in its brilliance. <laughs> I, will, I will greatly disappoint. <laughs> I just have to double down on what Lauren said, Oscar. Yeah, no, I mean, your feed is the go-to feed. And damn it, I want you to get more work. So I'm going to mm-hmm. sit on that in my head for a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I think I'm going to be leaving behind, which is a whole lot of decolonization of myself, I went to an all pretty white, very white girl boarding school in Connecticut. That kind of messed me up for a really long time. But I think what I took from that was I cared more for my white peers' feelings. And I've carried that with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm leaving that shit behind (laughs) because I can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. What am I putting in? I'm trying to put into my back care for myself. Mm My someone who I have great esteem for, who she recently shared that she had had a stroke and mm-hmm. she wrote this beautiful piece just about how her heart was literally and figuratively broken and the whole piece about self-care. I read that as well. And actually, it's that's a good, there are two people that I wanted to sort of shout out in this space. One is Melissa Bradley, who wrote the article that Vanessa just spoke about, who has done so much amazing work and wrote a beautiful piece. You can find it on Medium. And then Rodney Foxworth, who yeah. this week put out a call for um, announced that Common Futures was immediately distributing $750,000 to communities in need and called on other funders to do so. So those are two Medium posts as well to leave people with. As we close down this episode, which has been exactly what I needed yeah. to selfishly again, but I don't hide the fact that I am a grabber of brilliance. Um, <laughs> so I am greedy for brilliant people. So if, yeah, if we can't do this with our own live stream, then yeah. we, we do this. So, Oscar and Vanessa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Continue the Work Shouldn't Suck Live adventure with us on part two of our special series when we're joined by Ashara Ekundayo, Esteban Kelly, and Cyrus Marcus Ware. Miss us in the meantime? You can download more Work Shouldn't Suck Live episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck Live episodes over on workshouldn'suck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.